Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all on the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. Hello, job shop enthusiast. Your host, Jay Jacobs, here with another exciting guest today. Steve Duty is the owner and CEO of the CSI Group in Westboro, Mass., which is short for Component Sources International. Unlike many job shop owners, Steve comes from the sales side, specifically beginning as a manufacturer's rep and then starting a shop to take advantage of some of the gaps that he saw. So we'll get into some of that as well as talk about how he integrates his shop within a network of other shops to be a partner supplying kitted assemblies and other services rather than being just a piece part provider. And I think that that is really important if you want to create value as a job shop. And in essence, by doing so, he has created a lot more success in moving up the supply chain, creating the value. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, Steve. Thanks, Jay. Great to be here. I'd like to start out with how we were introduced. And that was by Dan Sullivan of Strategic Coach, of, yep. yeah, an organization which you and I are both members, you for a lot longer than myself, I think 15 years now? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I've been doing it for four years. I wish I'd started sooner. We both find a ton of value in it. And for me, all, of, all the programs that mm-hmm. I attend, Coach is definitely the last one I would ever give up. Could you share, Steve, what strategic coach is, what you've learned from it, and what you have found unique with the program. Sure, yeah. Strategic coach is a um, is a training program, so to speak, coaching program for entrepreneurs, business owners. We meet uh, one day a quarter, and uh, like you said, I've been doing it for fifteen years. It's been uh, it's been such a help for me you know I I won't say it saved me but when I first got in the program I was working six to seven days a week totally stressed out overwhelmed Mm -hmm. and I was actually sick I got an autoimmune disease called Hashimoto's which uh, oh wow my immune system took out my thyroid so I was uh, I was hurting and um, when I went to the coach as you know Jay they have the um, time management system Mm-hmm. And uh, you learn about free days and focus days and buffer days and uh, and yeah, learning about free days and and focusing on your health, taking time out to be with your family, mm-hmm. uh, managing your health <clears throat> and your stress level. Excuse me, I have a really bad cold. Um, you know, really, really helped me out. 
um, you know, that and many other concepts. Um, you've got the gap, um, which, you know, I, I think I was born in the gap. Uh, <laughs> the, the gap, as you know, is uh, having expectations that, you know, you can't, uh, can't realize. And, uh, yeah, the gap is a huge concept and it's called the gap in the gain. And I think one of the ways I like how Dan describes it is, if you are on a boat in the ocean, if you are looking at the horizon, you, no matter how far you travel, you will never, the horizon will always be as far as it is now. So no matter how successful you are, if you, if you, all you're doing is looking forward at what you have to accomplish, you're going to put yourself in the gap. And if, instead, if you look back and see how far you've come, you have a sense of appreciation and realize that, hey, you actually have accomplished a lot and that puts you in what he calls the gain. So uh, yeah, I was definitely in the gap more often than in the gain before I joined the program. Yes, yes, and uh, dealing with people, especially in your company, you have these expectations that uh, nobody can can meet and uh, mm -hmm. uh, it, was a, it was a game changer for me for sure. Then it was a Colby. Um, Colby is a personality test that defines um, what you, how, how you see the world, how you're wired, as you know, Jay, and um, mm -hmm. you know that that's huge. You can, <clears throat> you can get a great insight dealing with people, communicating with people that you know have have different needs for for you know communicating and information and things like that. Yeah, the Colby was. A really valuable tool for us because I had a fantastic COO I was working with Tom Persh and he and I there's four components to the Colby one of them which is your propensity for risk-taking and they score <laughs> it from one to ten I'm a nine he's a one so anything with three or more <laughs> difference you have the potential for conflict and we would yeah. butt heads yeah. And we didn't know why and we didn't know how to solve it. We both had tremendous respect for one another, but the Colby showed us how to work together. And once we understood how to work together and it specifically gave us the techniques to do so, the, that came in the last year as with rapid, we were on fire. We started to accomplish so much more faster because we each gave each other the freedom to work the way that we naturally did. That's awesome. Yeah. Powerful stuff. Uh, I, again, coaches made a difference for me as an entrepreneur and with, obviously it's, it's not free. So you've been investing in it for, for quite a while and yes. it sounds like yes. you're getting the value too. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's awesome. And, and, and the other great thing about it, Jay, is I meet guys like you, really successful guys and guys that have figured things out that I haven't, which is usually the case. And, um, you know, it's, it's just a great, great day of, uh, of being around a lot of really smart, successful people. Well, likewise, Steve. And actually, that's one of the things I'm excited to talk about today is learn, learn from you because you have just an amazing story from where you started out and perhaps the best way is if you could share with us what your purpose is now, what your mission is. 
Yeah, yeah, my purpose. Um, so my purpose is to create career opportunities for people that don't uh, necessarily fit into the industrial education system and uh, people that have made some bad decisions along the way and, uh, you know, have had some setbacks. How did that come about? Can you s start back in the beginning of your story, your journey to where you are today? Yeah, so, so it goes back to uh, I was definitely one of those people that didn't fit into the industrial model of education. And, um, you know, I, I always struggled in school. Um, <clears throat> in my junior year of high school, I, uh, I got thrown out for various reasons. And uh, so let, let's just repeat that so people really understand you, you got thrown out of high school your junior year. Yeah, yeah, like September or October of my junior year. And um, <clears throat> yeah, so I was, uh, I was out of school and um, I was uh, working full time at a warehouse unloading trucks. And I was pretty miserable. I, was, I, I made an attempt to go to night school, um, but uh, that didn't work out because I seldom went. So I got kicked out of that as well. Um, but I was uh, unloading trucks and, uh, you know, it was a physical job. Back then, mm -hmm. you know, we didn't have the material handling equipment we have today. And uh, so, um, you know, one day I was, uh, I had an epiphany. I was uh, working with this truck driver, as I always did, unloading a truck. And uh, <clears throat> this guy was hurting. He was beat up. He uh, was, you know, he you know, was, wasn't in a good place in his life and uh, pretty miserable. And we were talking and uh, all of a sudden he grabs my arm and he says to me, listen, kid, look at me. He says, I'm 50 years old. Both of my knees are shot, my back. I'm miserable. I'm a truck driver. You don't want to be like me. And wow, I looked this guy in the eyes and it was like I got hit with a bolt of lightning and I saw, I saw the future and it scared the hell out of me. So, yeah. so from there, you know, I, I, I went back to school. I begged to get back in. They let me in and, you know, I went on to, uh, to college. I went to, I had to go to junior college cause nobody was going to let me in. In fact, the Dean of admissions there said I was wasting his time and mine. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. so, um, and this is, and this is after you got your GED. Yep. Yep. I, I went back in my senior year and uh, I, you know, between getting credits for work study and taking a million classes and, and, um, you know, I, I was able to graduate. So you, you, you went off to college then? Yeah. Yeah. So I got double promoted, I guess. That's a positive <laughs> way of saying it. Um, yeah, and I went off to college and then I went to, I, I got my associate's degree and then I, I went on and um, <clears throat> started working uh, and went to school at night at, uh, at a really pretty good business school, Bentley, um, here in, in, uh, mm -hmm. in yeah. yeah, I studied, uh, I studied marketing and finance and, um, and then, uh, you know, I started a career and I was very fortunate to, um, to work at that time, this is 1980. And back then, 
companies were vertically integrated, they did everything. They did machining, they did turning, milling, molding, casting, plating, you know, these little, these little mini shops within a shop. And, mm -hmm. and, and of course that, that's, you know, no longer the case. And, um, you know, a lot of people don't know about all these different technologies. And, and that's one of the things that, uh, that we bring to the market is, uh, is all these different uh, capabilities and, and manufacturing technologies. So you went to, which was the, what was the name of the company you went to work for? Uh, I used to work at a company called uh, OmniSpectra. And, yeah, it's, and they had all those capabilities in house there. Yeah, yeah, and they had, they had a big machine shop and I really enjoyed, I used to, I used to eat my lunch with the engineers to learn, you know, it's like, I used to buy the tooling and the raw material and, and I was like, how does all this stuff work? And I was just, just really into it. I was a sponge back then and uh, I loved it. So you, so you were actually in a <coughs> procurement role at that point. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I started out out of college. Um, I worked at another company before that and ran a stock room and then, and then I got a job at this company working as an expediter. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, being an expediter, I was calling all these job shops trying to get parts that were two months late and they wouldn't return your phone call. <laughs> so I, I said to myself, you know, I, I, I can do a better job of this. You know, if, if, and if I ever have my own company, I'm going to be a really service oriented customer company. It's, you know, it's one of those things that is so obvious. It's, it's the basic blocking and tackling yeah. of, of being in business. And there's another strategic coach member who is making all these acquisitions in the medical services space. And he was presenting to us and he smiled and he said, you know what, one of the biggest impacts I made after I acquired these businesses was I made them answer the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. It's, so, it's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's, it gets back to the basics, no matter how much technology we have. And actually, technology can get in the way. Yes. So how did you get into being, a, or, or what's, what's the next part of your journey from OmniSpectra? Yeah, so when I was there, I was... Um, we had really demanding uh, requirements for machine parts, real small, real small diameter, like 50 thousandths diameter, beryllium copper contacts and, and mm. other devices. And they had slots and cross holes and you couldn't have burrs and you got to inspect them under a microscope. And, and, and most of the shops in the U.S. just really, they really couldn't do it uh, consistently at a high level. And it was pretty high production back then. Mm -hmm. So I, I developed uh, relationships with companies in uh, France, uh, just on the Swiss border that had the old uh, watchmaking technology. Sure. Yeah. And it was a really, really good fit for, for these kind of high precision, small diameter machine components. And they were also super automated over there. Back in, back in the 80s, they had uh, automatic bar loaders and drill checkers and <clears throat> and all kinds of automation and and they most of the all the shops that I worked with they ran on a tenant at night and so and this is back in the 80s and this is back in the 80s yeah 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 exactly so it was pretty special 
and uh, and I saw it as a business opportunity. So I started I started CSI Component Sources International, the rep firm, in 1987. Mm-hmm. Was that scary going out on your own? Um. You know, it. I don't remember it being scary. You know, I, I had my my second son at that time, so I just thought it was super exciting, and um, I was working with some great companies, and I just knew it was going to be a home run, and and it really was. We we grew the company, we grew the business. <clears throat> As a, so, you started out repping. What was what did you specialize in, and were all the shops European, or did you have some U.S.-based shops? Oh yeah, we had U.S.-based shops. We had uh, we had companies uh, located here in Massachusetts. A Swiss shop that specialized in uh, Swiss machining of plastics. Did a lot of Teflon components. Uh, another shop that had uh, the old Brown and Sharp cam machines and multi-spindle machines, um, and um, you know a few few smaller shops for some quick turn stuff. Mm-hmm. So, how did that lead into you bringing your own shop into the picture? Yeah, so, um, you know, being a, a rep, um, aka an industrial prostitute, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, 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 by, and by the way, I don't know if this is for maybe some of the younger audience. Uh, that might seem like a crude term, but uh, did you ever get Christmas lists from some of the buyers that you worked with? You know what I'm talking about there, right? Oh yeah. Gift lists. Yep. Yep. And liquid lunches and um, oh yeah. 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 There was, there was a lot more uh, expectation of favors back then than there is today. And it wasn't out of the ordinary at all, was it? No, it's just a, a way of doing business, you know, and, it, and there was nothing really bad about it. It was just, uh, it was just the way it was, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. So I'm sorry, I interrupted you there, but the, you saw some gaps, you saw some opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I saw these opportunities to bring these, um, this force of uh, manufacturing capability for this particular niche in the marketplace. And, uh, and then in, in 90, yeah, so I was uh, 94, I started uh, CSI manufacturing because being a rep, you know, you're just a phone call away. You do a great job and you get people a lot of business and they say, hey, Steve, you know, nice job, but I got my own guy now. Mm-hmm. So um, you can't want- be too successful as a rep, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and that's, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I, so as a joint venture with myself and the French companies that I, still represent today. Uh, we started CSI Manufacturing. They were minority shareholders. And we wanted to have stateside manufacturing, reactive manufacturing, U.S. dollar delivered. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, and in, uh, you know, it was, it was a success. It was a struggle. Uh, what, what type of equipment did you bring in first? Uh, parts? Swiss CNC. It was a, a Tornos machine that really wasn't a very good machine. It was... Um, um, some of the machines they had in France, but, um, you know, we, str- we struggled, but we, we, uh, we, we built the business and we built a team and, um, you know, today we got, uh, we got 30, 30 machines and 25 people on the shop and we mm-hmm. got, uh, um, you know, we, we do a lot of different, uh, machining and, uh, serve a lot of different markets. 
and you're in the greater Boston area. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And a lot of the companies, um, they have the, they have the same, um, machines in some cases, but as you know, Jay, people, people develop their, their capabilities very differently. They specialize in different materials, they mm -hmm. specialize in, um, different types of, uh, machining on the machine using attachments, um, in various very creative ways, polygon milling, um, doing a, a lot of work on front and the back of the machine, no secondary operations and, you know, very high production. So you are still representing other shops and we're going to get into how that fits into the assembly and the kitting and that sort of stuff. But that's pretty different than a lot of reps. Not that there are a lot of reps who started shops, but I was a manufacturer's rep before I started rapid. And once I started getting going with rapid, I stopped the repping, but you've continued it. And that is an important part of the, I'll call it the network that you've created and the unique positioning you have with your customers. So can you describe how that all works? And I, I don't know if you ever consciously had to decide whether to continue that or or drop it, but if you can jump into that some too. Yeah, yeah, so um, the way it works is is that we're first always trying to bring value to the customer, to the relationship, and, and mm -hmm. what's the value is bringing more capability, more services, um, and the way you do that is, is you, you bring the right process to the customer. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know, so, so like I was saying before, companies specialize in, in different uh, types of manufacturing. And, um, and it is our job to understand exactly who's the best at this particular type of manufacturing process. You know, it can also include outside of Swiss machining, you know, stamping, molding. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and then when you know, if you can look at a drawing and you say, you know, that's, that's a great stamp part. Um, or, you know, maybe, maybe it should be sheet metal or maybe it could be milled or you can take a, a milled part and turn it into a sheet metal part. And, and mm. you, can just, you can just bring so much value to a relationship. You know, even on the Swiss machining side, you, you know who's really good at certain things and what they're really not good at. A lot of shops right. try to be everything to everybody. And uh, it's, it, it's difficult to do that. We, you know, we try to do that every day here when, no, when nobody else wants to make it, right? Right, right. For that next big opportunity, as we say. Um, so, so everybody gets it and um, it, that, that's in the group. You know, the, there's, there's, you know, that they all could compete, compete with each other and some do in Europe. Um, mm -hmm. But, but, you know, this, this, we have this, we have this agreement. Um, there's enough business out there. <clears throat> let's let's do the work that's really fitted for our shop. It's we have the best quality, we have the best service, we have the best price, and obviously you have the best profit as well when you have the right process. So so it's really a big value add to find to to bring the work to the right company. And can you describe though how Again, did you consciously ever uh, make that decision that you wanted to continue the network or did you ever think about, should I just focus on making parts and grow in CSI manufacturing? 
No, I always thought of it, um, you know, together, together, it's, you know, collaborating with, with really good shops and then augmenting that with what we do here in our shop is, has been a big win. Uh, you know, it's in, you know, our charter originally, you know, the, the, the charter CSI manufacturing, we talked about my purpose and that's part, that's, that's part of the charter of CSI manufacturers creating, um, creating, uh, uh, opportunity, career opportunities for people. Um, mm -hmm. In addition to that, it's uh, it's opening the door uh, for the other companies in the group, and and uh, working with customers, and then as they as the projects or or the you know the, the demand increases, we can we can bring the other shops in that are really better suited to do that. The when you're working now with customers you are looking more to provide them with, I don't know if assembly is the right <coughs> word, but kits yep. and you are also sourcing beyond your network and going to source from their approved supplier list if you don't have anyone in your network who, and I think that this is really important, rather, rather than trying to force it into your network, you're more concerned with the right process and you'd rather use their approved supplier to make yep. sure that everything goes smoothly. Exactly. So how do you give us some examples, some stories of programs that you've worked with customers and how those evolve, how do those come in? Where, where, what are the different steps? And I'm thinking of a job shop owner who says, I want to try to be more than a piece part supplier. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so that's all that goes back to that, that value, um, adding value to the relationship with a customer. So you see customers struggling with managing their inventory and um, you see them struggle with, um, you know, buying you know, a bill of material might have 25 different parts and we can make, we can make half of those parts and the other half we can, we can buy from a distributor, a hardware distributor. Let me, let me pause you right there. Yep. So, when you say that they're struggling with their inventory, how, how is that shown? How do you know that they're struggling? Because typically the customer always is seen to be in this power seat and they, they don't have any issues. They, yeah. they're, they're just trying to get the best price out of you. So can right. you just elaborate on, on that struggling piece, the, the, the issues that our customers face that we may not know about? Yeah, so so I learned uh, uh, from one of our bigger customers at our shop uh, that every month they have about a hundred kits they can't assemble because they're missing one part or another. Really? Yeah, yeah, a hundred, and uh, it's a big operation. And so I said to him, man, I said, you know, we make most of the parts that go into these kits, you know, the important parts. I said, why don't you give me the bill of material? We'll put together a kit, package it the way your assemblers want it. We'll ship it off to anywhere in the world, and we do. We we ship, we ship kits off to a contract manufacturer, mm -hmm. and they do the final assembly and uh, and some other value add for the customer. The customer places one PO. Um, everything that it never even comes in their building. There's no inspection. It goes to the CM. CM mm -hmm. does their job, and they have a finished good. They can ship out to their customer. That, huge, huge. that sounds like a huge win for the customer. Absolutely. So how did, the, the, was that just an idle conversation or were you, how did you 
uncover the fact that they were having kits that they couldn't assemble. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, you know, it was a conversation, a meeting, a meeting we had, and it was, uh, so, so what can we do to help you guys? What are you really struggling with? So you, know, you what, specifically asked that question. Absolutely. Absolutely. What, what's, what's hurting you guys? What's killing you guys right now? Oh, we got shortages, shortages all the time. And I knew they had shortages because they call up and they say, hey, I need this in a week. Can you help me out? <laughs> you know, we're trying to make our month, right? Right, right. You've heard that story, right? Yeah. And that was the basis of your business, I guess, to a, to a certain it, extent. It was. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so, yeah. And, um, and then, uh, you know, you, you, you roll these up in some, uh, some sort of a, a VMI logistics program. Uh, mm -hmm. Probably seventy percent of our our orders, um, in in our shop and our and the other companies in our group are are blanket type orders, where we make, and plate, and ship, um, you know, in a kit form or just a single a single component that goes to, to one of their um, <coughs> assembly operations. <clears throat> so, most shops, the majority of their people are making parts that doesn't sound like that's necessarily the case in your shop you have a well, probably a good sized staff that's putting the kits together yep. you must have great qc functions how did you evolve that so that it i guess wasn't just considered overhead well yeah it's um you know it's an evolution uh, as you know, you start out with one job and then um, you come up with a with the right, you know, person, somebody, mm -hmm. you know, shipping guys, putting the kits together. Um, and uh, then you've got uh, other people that are involved in the program, depending upon how big the program goes. Mm -hmm. Do an assembly. We do assembly and, su and sub-assembly. And that's, the, you know, and, and we have a saying here, it's called bomb buying. Or, or I say, um, you know, we, we're trying to climb our way up the bill of material. Right? Gotcha. Uh, yeah. so, so, and I say to customers, just give me the bill of material, you know, we'll, we'll run with it. And we did, we had a big aerospace customer came to us, the buyer, we were just starting a relationship with him and the buyer was, was really stressed. He goes, we got this opportunity. It's, it's for military. We've got to qualify. We need to make, we need to build a hundred of these, of this assembly. And, um, I don't know, I think it was like six weeks mm -hmm. and, and the bill of material was 80 components. And we made between our shop, 3D printing, stamping, um, uh, milling, turning, we did it. We nailed it. We delivered this kit, 80 different piece parts, 100 of each. And uh, it was a huge, huge uh, win for the customer. This buyer was totally overwhelmed. He was going to have to buy 80 different part numbers. That's, huh. And you did it in six weeks. We did. So that, and that, you're, you're, that creates the value. Now yep. you're, in, now you're embedded. And I, and I think it's important because there are a lot of the, it's, there's a lot of gray when in that, in that bomb. And so that knowledge is now owned by CSI not the customer so it's much harder to disengage from you right and I, I think that's what creates part of that value and they can't just shop around on price 
Exactly, exactly. We're, we're going through a, a program right now where we're into our third or fourth a version of a uh, of an assembly, a three-piece assembly, three machine parts that get pushed together, and they got a couple O-rings on it, and it's and it's in a I can't tell you, but it's in a manufacturing process, not a component that goes into an, uh, like an assembly, but it's part of a manufacturing process, and um, so they have to go through this tremendous uh, qualification process because this this component goes in to making what they do. Mm-hmm. And um, and yeah, and so so you get in the ground floor. The engineers they don't want to go there. They don't want to deal with somebody else. It's like aerospace and medical. You get qualified into a program, and we have a number of parts on aircraft, and you're in there for life unless you do something really bad. Mm-hmm. And it all started out or starts out with asking, "What are you struggling with? How can we help you?" Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Excellent. Covered a lot of CSI. What else is there within CSI that uh, you might want to share things that you do that are perhaps a little unique? Yeah. So we, uh, we, we, we try to use technology mm-hmm. to, um, you know, to obviously do more for less. Mm-hmm. And, um, one of the recent uh, wins we had was uh, using a real basic robot to do 100% inspection on some on some parts that are, are small that get um, that get bent after plating. We get we gold plate the parts and there's there's some damage and we 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 have to do 100%. And you mm-hmm. know, we have women uh, that are you know um, and guys that do 100% inspection under a microscope and. Um, so we, we figured, well, let's, let's use the, uh, let's use a robot. So we, we do a, uh, we pick the part up through, you know, real standard. Is this the one that's profiled on your website? Yep. Yep. Okay. So just for the audience, this is, and I'm sorry to interrupt you here, Steve, but I just, I just thought that this was incredible for a number of reasons. And first of all, if you go to www.com, compsources.com that's CSI's website and you look under the news section you'll see a news blog a news post robotic technology at CSI so this is specifically what Steve's talking about and what I was able to observe and I want to say first of all kudos for putting a video in there just embedding that into the news post because if I read about this I would have and yeah, that's, that's all right, you know, but when you actually see it, you go, my God, that's so simple, but so, so correct. <laughs> it's the right thing to do. And I'm sure it's not as simple as it looks, but it's something that every shop could do because I think of robots, I think of that's something a bigger company can implement. But again, you got 25 folks uh, uh, roughly at CSI, correct? Yep. Yeah. And you've got a robot doing a hundred percent inspection. So yeah, I'm sorry. Let me have you continue your story on, on, on how this evolved and how this happened. Yeah. Yeah. So it's about uh, productivity and reducing labor costs and, and uh, you know, it's taking people and and utilizing them doing something more value add to, you know, doing uh, soon 
more, you know, some measurement type stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, so the robot picks the part up from a little vibratory, standard vibratory bowl, not a bowl feeder. Um, mm -hmm. And um, we use a suction uh, to, to pick the part up. So it's very adaptable, picks up lots of different parts. And it basically sticks it under our vision system, which we, we use a Keyance. Mm -hmm. And it sends a signal and inspects the part. And um, you could record the data if you wanted to. We're just looking for a, a good or bad. Sends a signal to the robot, and the robot will put it in either the good box or the bad box. It, again, I encourage you to watch the video. It's only probably a minute long or so, but yes, you did. I, I love it, Steve. How long did it take to make that work? You know, we, we started in August and I think we were, we were sorting parts in September. We have this uh, great young engineer that's um, here um, uh, part-time uh, mm -hmm. um, in a, on a program. And uh, yeah, he's, he just uh, embraced the technology. And you know, it's so simple now um, that, and it's low cost. It probably costs us uh, 40 grand for the robot and for the vibratory and you know, some some electronics, it was probably another eight grand, you know, and the thing, it'll, it'll work all night and day, you know? Yes. And this is the first program you've done with a robot. Yes. Yep. So this is bought in August up and running in September. Now I would think that with the experience you have under your belt, there's other applications and you could implement them probably faster. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We can use it for a variety of different parts. Um, actually, one of our French uh, partners uh, wants to bring it over to France and use it to load their zona nailing machine where they, they drop these contacts, these heat treated contacts into a um, uh, induction coil. And mm -hmm. it just it just uh, anneals just one side of the contact so you can cable crimp it. Mm -hmm. And and they have they have people that that's what they do for their job. They, they load this machine dropping contacts in. And now you have a robot that can do it. The person who was doing this at your plant and where I'm going with this is people say that automation is displacing jobs. And yes, it is displacing perhaps the job of a hundred percent inspection, but that's a, not a fun job and no. pretty monotonous job. So yeah. did you fire this person, lay them off or what are they doing now? No, absolutely not. They're doing, you know, higher value work. They're, they're trained up and, and, you know, have more skill now and, and actually make more money. And, um, you know, so, they have, they have more. Well, let's, let's, let's say that again. So you, you didn't lay them off. Nope. They, they know CSI, you know, their values and their skills and sounds like you invested more training yep. in them. Yep. And then because they have more skills now, you were able to pay them more money because they were able to do something more complex. Exactly. Perfect. And I think we hear, often hear about the skills gap. This is one of the ways that we narrow the skills gap or we, we use technology to fill the skills gap. Yes, yep, absolutely. It's a great story. Anything else with the robots? What other applications do you see 
right here in Massachusetts? Uh, on the robot side? Well, yeah. Conventional, you know, loading a machine, uh, doing some packaging. I'd love to see it do some deburring, uh, but, uh, you know, being a job shop, you have, you, you can't spend a lot of time engineering mm -hmm. a, a solution. You know, the, the inspection, dropping it on a, on an inspection machine is, is one thing and trying to do some too complex is another. So, so it's, you know, it's step-by-step, step. it's an evolution and understanding the technology. And another technology we use that uh, has been uh, really beneficial is we, we have, um, we have sensors in all our machines. It's basically just a, uh, a sensor that's wrapped around the power cable that goes into the, into the uh, breaker box. Okay. And, and uh, it senses when the machine is on and off and it, it goes up on the cloud and, and we can see it uh, from anywhere in the world. And we, we can actually program a, um, uh, a phone number in there. So when the machine goes down, it sends a text message to somebody that's on call or somebody that's even in the building. What is the specific software hardware solution that you're using for that? It's a company called Amper, A-M-P-E-R. And it's, it's, uh, you know, it's subscription based. Uh, you can, you can go online and they'll, they'll send you the sensor and you, and you wrap it around that, that cable and, mm -hmm. and you hook it up to the Wi-Fi and, and, and you're off and running. Pretty basic, but otherwise you, would potentially have to have a camera on it, people monitoring it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, even, you know, so it's great. So we run a lot of machines unattended and mm -hmm. uh, we, we'll put somebody on call mm -hmm. and, and to us, you know, we set, we set the parameters for the time. We're not gonna have somebody, you know, get a text message at three o'clock in the morning when they come in at six. Right. So, um, so it works great there. And even, even in the shop, when, when one of the engineers or, or production managers is, um, is at their desk they can they can have the um their whole department on a uh, on a screen showing what machines are up and down and you know if somebody as you know people get into a setup and they struggle and they don't want to they don't want to ask for help so you have to sometimes go out there and uh and uh and help them interesting I want to circle back to your purpose and can you give us some examples at CSI, share some stories where you have been able to create career opportunities for people who wouldn't or don't fit into the standard academic environment? Oh, sure. Yeah, we have a shop full of guys that uh, never went to college uh, or maybe tried to go to college, didn't work out. And, but they had they had mechanical aptitude, and we can determine that. A lot of times, you can tell you can tell by looking at the car they're driving, right? Yeah, yeah. Or the motorcycle, right? Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, and um, and you know some guys are you know working at a fast food place, right? And you know you know what that you know that's like. Right. And then they they come to a, a manufacturing company like ours. Usually, a lot of young guys. Uh, they come out of fast food or, you know, we've, we've had ex-cons here. We've had, you know, addicts, ex-addicts um, mm -hmm. in different programs and stuff. But, uh, yeah, they come in and, and we put them through a vetting process. And that's usually spinning chips, you know, spinning the oil out of the chips. Yep. And if they do that and they're a solid citizen and they're serious and they have mechanical aptitude, we have a, a training program that uh, we do internally and externally. 
and they they work their way up. They go into uh, to parts finishing, into quality, on the shop floor, and then um, setup, and then programming. And and I say to everybody, I said, you know, we want you to have the highest skill level. We make money with skill. We mm-hmm. don't make money with low skilled people. And um, and the, and the and the guys love it. And they're, they're you know you got a guy that was working at fast food pizza place and uh now you know he's he's got a got a home with a pool and you know kids and um you know it's just really gratifying to to see that absolutely that was one of the things that brought me a lot of joy at rapid was with our growth we we wanted folks to develop the skills like you're talking about so that we could bring them into roles that were created through the growth. So people in shipping who started out and they became production floor managers and people who came in not knowing what a sheet metal part was ending up running engineering, running wow. manuf it, it's yeah. it really that that's I think for both of us part of the joy and gratification of being a shop owner and i'm sure a lot of other folks out there as well you 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 present the opportunities and you let folks take advantage of them and support them along the way absolutely yep it is the greatest joy of uh, owning a business you talked a little bit about the technology you're bringing in and i know paperless parts is something you're starting to implement the geometric search matching is something that has really caught your eye and yes. can you share what your where your thoughts are there and how that might be of value yes absolutely i'm really excited about that we have customers that have five six thousand different part numbers mm-hmm. many of which um, are similar to some extent mm-hmm. and uh where I made a presentation to to one customer, and uh, I said, "Look, you know, you buy a lot of volume parts from us, and I know that there's different versions of these parts that you probably buy five or ten or twenty pieces or a hundred pieces a year or a couple of times a year for for a crazy amount of money. With this geometric search capability, we can we can capture all these families of parts. We can quote you a a, a blanket order." Uh, where we have the production order and then with that same setup, we can alter that setup and run off these other parts that you buy in small quantity and and have them available for you. And they, they were ecstatic about it. So backing up a little, can you describe how the geometric search works within paperless? Right. So you, you put a part, um, in the in the quoting uh, app, and you it'll look at um, your database of uh, CAD models, and um, and comes up with uh, like parts. Yes, it, so we have the ability to do an exact match, meaning 100% geometry, and then we can show also the very close matches, and identify, give you the information on the jobs and customers and part numbers and so that there is knowledge of the geometry it is essentially geometry drives everything and as you said if 
if geometries are similar, then there's opportunities for cost savings there. Yeah, absolutely. I did a little simulation and and I, I put together about uh, six different part numbers and and the savings was like five and six X. Really? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So that's an easy sell to the customer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this is a, a novel way of using the geometrics search capability that I hadn't thought of before. The We originally created it because we knew estimators were seeing the same geometry or similar geometry, but they didn't know. It might have been six months, a year ago, and they couldn't remember exactly when it was, who it was, and this was a way to stop looking, clicking yeah. on all those folders, opening oh, and, you know, yeah. file. Yeah. Exactly. I, I love how, I love how you're doing it and being proactive. And the other really neat thing about this, Steve, is that now you, the, the customer is willingly giving you a database of how many, how many different parts did you say? What quantity? Oh, five, 6,000 different part numbers and, you know, uh, cra crazy amount of parts. Right. So this is how you move up the the bomb and how you become yeah. a partner, yeah. not just a piece part provider. Exactly. Exactly. And and, and they save a fortune uh, and they and they don't have you know the lead time to deal with it. Parts in, in some sort of an agreement that will, they're available. And they don't have the technology to do this because no. the CAD systems don't have geometric part matching built in. Even if you have families of parts, it may not, it doesn't cross uh, different families. Right, right. You know, in the old, in the old, old school ways, you do a codification of the part number. Mm -hmm. You know, so it, you, you can describe the part, the geometry of the part with a part number. Right. And, <laughs> but that's only so limited. Yeah. The, I know Paperless interrogates the 3D model and comes up with a whole bunch of unique things that they're looking at and couple are very proprietary to get with 100% certainty that it is the same geometry. Yes. So the other service that you're using at Paperless is the <clears throat> marketing? Yes, yes. I'm really, really excited about that. That's, that's huge. Um, you know, on the sales side, the sales company, the rep side, I would spend waste uh, 10, 20 grand a year on some sort of marketing program. Uh, and half of that money and more would be trying to describe to a marketing company what we do, right? Mm -hmm. And and paperless, I mean, you guys are in the business and you know the business. I don't, I don't have to explain to Matt what, what a job shop does in, in, in Swiss machining. And, right. uh, and that that's huge. It's um, and uh, he is um, wow. He's he's unbelievable. He he went into our website and found um, about eighty pages of errors and disconnects and all kinds oh. of stuff that we weren't even aware of. And he fixed them in a couple of days or less. And you were paying somebody to manage your website before this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it's it's just really really. Uh, um, it's been a huge value to us. We, I feel like I have a partner now that knows the business, has been there, done that, and has the tech uh, to to support the whole thing. And I rapid, you know, how much of your business was was online, you know, off the internet. Oh, so 
for the audience, Matt Cerdillo ran Rapid Sheet Metal, Rapid Machining's marketing services. He had two or three people, depending at the time, who worked with him, social media and <clears throat> developing the graphic materials, all the other supporting marketing materials. And I know that our percentage of sales for marketing was much less than other companies out there in the same prototype space who were marketing extensively on the web. So he's a, been a valuable member, founding member of the paperless team. Yeah, he's awesome. Really, really fast. I can't keep up with the guy. We, we, we have so much to do. We have so much to do. And, uh, and just in a short time, he's, he's done a lot. So thank you. That's great. So one thing I would like to get your comment on is you, at least on your website, but I think from what we talked about, like small parts, really precision, tight tolerance, parts yes. that are well anyways there seems to be a trend toward smaller and smaller and more precision and more complexity in those size parts is that yes. something you're seeing are you seeing i guess the market in a sense moving towards you and your company's capabilities yeah absolutely absolutely um it everything's getting smaller and smaller higher precision uh, it's getting to a point where uh, I mean, we're making some parts in our shop that um, the OD is um, 12 thousandths diameter. The ID is uh, 8 thousandths diameter. And, and, and you <laughs> can't even crazy. See, Yeah. You, I mean, it's one thing to machine it, get the tools to do it. It's another to get the part out of the machine, clean it, to, to visually inspect it and measure it. And it's getting to a point where you really need robots and vision systems because you, you just can't see what you're making. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, what sort of equipment do you have that can make parts that small? Well, it's uh, CNC Swiss, mm -hmm. you know, highly adapted for making that kind of part. I mean, you, you really have to transform the machine mm -hmm. to do that kind of work. So, when you say transform, are you customizing what the yes. equipment manufacturer is delivering? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's what a shop's um, expertise is. That's what separates them from the com competitors. And that's what all these different guys in our group, they all have a way of adapting this same kind of machine in many cases, right? Hmm. Um, you, you, you specialize in uh, certain materials, diameters, uh, and what you do with your machine, uh, we use we use 3D printing for for making uh, fixtures and attachments and things like that that go on the machine uh, to to uh, you know to hold tools or take parts out of the machine and um, you know different applications. Which 3D printing technologies do you use? Um, uh, we're using um, mainly carbon fiber um, type, and it's um, uh, Mark Forge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, so there are a number of applications and that it's working for you. Yes. Yeah. We don't make any piece parts for customers. It's all, it's all for uh, supporting the shop. 
So what would your advice be to a job shop owner who his who does not have a 3D printer in house? How should they think about learning about the technology, getting involved with it? What's the first step? Um, well, I think the first step would be to you know, think about what what would help you, what would help you ad adapt your machines uh, in a different way that would increase productivity or capability. And, and then work with a work with a subcontractor that's in the 3D printing business and then see what your demand is. You know, that you can spend, uh, you know, a lot of, you can spend a few thousand dollars to hundred thousand dollars on a 3D printer. Mm -hmm. it, de it depends on uh, what your, what your demand is. Do you own the printers or do you buy the parts? Uh, we have a printer in, uh, in our French partners uh, operation that we have parts made on. Okay. Super. Well, what else should we know about CSI? CSI, um, you know, we're, we're a job shop like, uh, like everybody else. And, and, uh, we like to collaborate. We're always looking for good people to work with that, uh, can, can bring more to the customer. Uh, one of the areas where we're kind of weak in is on the prototype side. We would uh, love to work with some good companies that are serious about prototyping and growing the company. Uh, we've had some bad experiences uh, with, with prototype in small volumes where companies typically are, um, you know, they, they fill up real fast or they have one or two customers that, that uh, can keep them really busy and, and um, you know, it doesn't make a good, uh, good long-term relationship. So, so um, um, yeah, we're trying to add value. That's really, that's the, my, my basic business strategy is add value. Do you think that there is a niche for a company to do prototypes of Swiss type parts? Absolutely. I've, I've been trying to get my guys to do it and they, you know, they're, they're all so busy that that's the last thing they want to do. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it's, um, it's really important to grow the business we never had any Swiss type machines at rapid, but it was always on my radar as a possible good little segment to, to tackle that it, there seemed to be a space where most people who have the Swiss equipment are because it takes a little while to set them up to, they, they don't want to, they want to run a large quantity of parts, but what, I understood it rapid was if you understand your costs, which are primarily set up and you price correctly, then you should be happy to do quantity one. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, that's your business model, isn't it? Yeah. But I would definitely say that the prototypes and production are like oil and water. Yep. And you cannot do not want to do both on the same equipment with the same people, you'll, you'll blow their minds up. Exactly. And we, we had a sheet metal customers who we realized a number of years in that we were essentially their production supplier, but it might only be five or 10 pieces at a time, which was often a prototype quantity, but these were production parts and they wanted the part made the same way it was six months ago. 
and the, they wanted it in six months from now the same way that it would be made. So you had to have standard methodologies just for those five or 10 parts. And wow. every time we made a prototype part, we re-engineered it. <laughs> so it, they all met print, but as you know, there's different ways you can make parts yep. and they'll all make print, but they're, they're a little different and that's not what the customer wants in production. So right. uh, we, we physically had two separate locations, one for prototypes and one for production be, and, and two different staffs. And we, we did not mix the two because uh, I blew up the shop a couple times with uh, trying to make stuff like that happen. Right, right, yeah. Um, I can see that. We've, we've tried it and failed. Uh, we've, we've burned ourselves with some customers trying to support small volume work and make production at the same time, and you kill your schedule because yeah, you, yeah. you die in one job, you know, yep. for 10 pieces, and the machine's backed up for a week and a half, and that, you know, 10,000-piece job is, uh, is two weeks late now, you know, so you're absolutely yep. right. It's a different, different mindset. You have to have different machine tools and different people. Steve, thank you so much for chatting with us today. I think this is a good place to wrap up. Any last comments you want to make? Um, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to be on the podcast and thank you for paperless parts. I think um, it's, uh, it's a great technology and uh, we're really looking forward to utilizing it at a very high level and also on the marketing side. Well, thanks for the kind words there. And I really appreciate how you are willing to be open about your beginnings and the struggle you had and how you have not only overcome that, but you have made it a core of how you do business today and part of your purpose or your, or your purpose, the way that you look beyond just owning a business and making a profit you you staff your your company with people who were are in the same position that you were once in and that's really commendable so kudos thank you yeah all right well that's it for today folks thanks for tuning in to the job shop show please leave us a five-star platinum recommendation on whichever platform you are listening and until next time keep those spindles turning and those machines humming let's uh let's not get any text messages in the middle of the night saying the machine's down <laughs> <laughs> have a great day steve thanks you too jay